Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. As some of you may know, this autumn, the London Review of Books celebrated its 30th anniversary. And so it seems particularly fitting, and we're particularly delighted to welcome Alan Bennett here this evening, because he has been a close friend and supporter of the magazine since it was founded in 1979. In fact, he published his first piece with the paper exactly 30 years ago in December 1979, a piece on John Gielgud. Since then, he has written many, many wonderful pieces for us, diaries, stories, and essays, and been a major contributor to the success of the magazine. He's also been incredibly friendly and helpful to us when we've needed a good word put in for the shop or the magazine. He's always been ready to do this. And I really just wanted to thank Alan at this point. It seems a good moment to thank him for, for all this support, which has really, really been enormously appreciated by everybody in the organization. So th thank you, Alan. This evening, he will be talking about his play, The Habit of Art, which opened at the National Theatre a month ago, which is about a meeting between W.H. Auden and Benjamin Britten. And this reminded me of one of the funniest articles we've ever published in the magazine, which was by Alan back in 1985, on Auden's relationship to Chester Kalman, his long-term partner. And I hope you'll forgive me if I just read a paragraph from this, this wonderful piece, because... It's sort of irresistible, really, and um, you can find the whole article on the website when you, when you get back home. Um, at this point, he's talking about Auden's and Chester Kalman's household arrangements. Luckily for the peace of their various households, they were both sluts. <laughs> if Auden has been as big a stickler for tightness as he was for punctuality, he would never have had his pinny off. Chester was an inspired cook, though wasted on Auden, who preferred good nursery food and lashings of it. A toilet innocent of harpic, a sideboard, baron of pledge, the New York setup on St. Mark's Place was not an apartment for the fastidious. Those who are not as other men are often like a place just so, and the wonder is that none of the visiting bits of fluff didn't nip round and do a spot of post-coital dusting. One who did lend a hand, though very much not a bit of fluff, was Vera Stravinsky. Chester's working surfaces included the bathroom floor, and paying a call of nature, Mrs. Stravinsky spotted what she took to be a bowl of dirty water standing there. In a forlorn attempt to give the place a woman's touch, Mrs. Stravinsky emptied the contents into the wash basin, only to discover later on that this had been the pièce de résistance of the meal, a chocolate pudding. The basin was incidentally the same basin in which Auden routinely pissed. Where, one wonders, did one wash one's hands after one had washed one's hands? 
Hello. I, uh, apropos of that, uh, I always uh, liked uh, uh, I suppose Madame Stravinsky being called Vera. Uh, it, se it seemed to uh, humanise him. And I, uh, I was saying this to John Bird, and he said, oh, well, it, it, not, not half so much as Stockhausen's wife uh, humanised him. She was called Doris, D Doris Stockhausen. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read uh, the, the introduction to the Faber edition of the, of the play and then, um, and then have question and answer. By the time Auden came to live in the Brew House, a cottage in the grounds of Christchurch in 1972, I had long since left Oxford and in any, in any case would never have had the nerve to speak to him. I'd first heard his voice in Exeter College Hall sometime in 1955. The lower end of the scholar's table where I was sitting was only a yard or two from high table where the dons dined, and hearing those harsh quacking tones without knowing whose they were, I said to my neighbour that it sounded like the voice of the devil. Someone better informed put me right. It was Auden, at that time still with blondish hair and the face yet to go under the harrow. I don't think I'd read much of his poetry, I would have understood it if I had, but when Auden gave his inaugural lecture as Professor of Poetry the following year, I dutifully went along, knowing, though not quite why, that he was some sort of celebrity. At that time I still harboured thoughts of becoming a writer, and I thought of it in capital letters, so when Auden outlined what he took to be the prerequisites of a literary life, or at any rate a life devoted to poetry, I was properly dismayed. Besides favourite books, essential seemed to be an ideal landscape, leads, a knowledge of metre and scansion, and this was the clincher, a passion for the Icelandic sagas. <laughs> if writing meant passing this kind of kit inspection, I'd better forget it. But what Auden was saying, and he said it pretty regularly, was all do as I do, which is what unhelpful writers often say when asked about their profession, though few with such seeming conviction and authority as the newly inaugurated professor of poetry. He used to hold court in the Cadena, but it wasn't a cafe I cared for. There were undergraduates I knew at whom Auden made passes, though I was still young and innocent enough to find a pass as remarkable as the person making it. When he died in 1973, his death seemed to me less a loss to poetry, the poetry was largely over, than a loss to knowledge. Auden was a library in himself, and now all this store, the reading, the categories, the associations, had gone down with that great listing clay-coloured hulk. And though much of what he knew he had written down and published, either as lectures or in reviews, there was always more. The flurry of memoirs and reminiscences of the poet in his talk that began almost immediately on his death was not only a testament to his life, but an attempt to salvage some of the wisdom he discarded in conversation, and some of the unwisdom too. In The Hunting of the Snark, Lewis Carroll, a Christchurch don, wrote, What I tell you three times is true. With Auden, also at Christchurch, it was the opposite. What Auden said three times, you would begin to doubt. And when he'd said it a dozen times, nobody cared anyway. 
Auden somewhere makes a distinction between being boring and being a bore. He was never boring, he was too extraordinary for that, but by the time he came back to live in Oxford he had become a bore. His discourse was persistently pedagogic. He was never not teaching and or showing off how much he knew, always able to make a long arm and reach for references unavailable to his well-read, less well-read hearers. And he got, as he got towards the end of his life, his conversation and his pedagogy got more and more rep repetitive, which must have been a particular disappointment to his colleagues at Christchurch, where, when he'd been briefly resident in the past, he'd been an enlivening member of the common room. Now he was just infuriating. What they had been hoping for was, understandably, some form of enlightenment and entertainment. This was made plain early on in The Habit of Art in a speech by the Dean, which had to be cut, as favourite bits of my scripts often are. <laughs> the brew house is not a garret quite, say, sheltered accommodation rather, a granny flat. But mark this, if the college is minded to provide this accommodation, it's for nothing so vulgar as a poet in residence. This isn't Keel. Still less is it East Anglia. No, we see it as providing a niche. Young persons nowadays might even call it a pad for one of our most renowned graduates. If it is a touch Spartan, blame the bursa. But then, the point of Parnassus was never the upholstery. Besides, the hope is that undergraduates will find their way up the stairs to sit not in the chairs, but at these famous feet. But remember... We are not asking the great man to do. His doing, after all, is mostly done. No, we are asking him to be. Count the poet's presence here as one of those extracurricular plums that only Oxford has to offer. Fame in the flesh can be a part of education, and in the person of this most celebrated poet, the word is made flesh and dwells among us, full of grace and truth. But to everyone's disappointment, the college, the students, and Auden himself, it didn't turn out like that. But say it had been Larkin at the same stage of his life, he wasn't much fun either at the finish. In 1972, when Auden arrived in Oxford, Britain was well advanced and on the writing of Death in Venice, his last opera. Neither poet nor composer was in good health, with Auden six years older than Britain. I never met or even saw Britain, but find I wrote about him in my diary in June 2006. Having seen the TV programme on which it was based, I've been reading Britain's Children by John Bridcut. Glamorous though he must have been and a superb teacher, I find Britain a difficult man to like. He had his favourites, children and adults, but both Britain and Piers were notorious for cutting people out of their lives. Eric Crozier is mentioned here, and Charles McCurris. Friends and acquaintances suddenly turned into living corpses if they overstepped the mark. A joke would do it, and though Britain seems to have had plenty of childish jokes with his boy singers, his sense of humour isn't much in evidence elsewhere. And it's not merely adults that were cut off. A boy whose voice suddenly broke could find himself no longer invited to the Red House or part of the group. A fate which the boys Bridcut here quotes here seemed to have taken philosophically, 
which would seem potentially far more damaging to a child's psychology than too much attention. One thinks, too, of the boys who were not part of the charmed circle. They were presumably fat boys and ugly boys, or just plain dull boys, who could nevertheless sing like angels. What of them? Britain and Peter Pierce came disastrously to be on the fringe sometime in 1961. Included in the show was a parody of Britain written by Dudley Moore, in which he sang and accompanied himself in Little Miss Muffet, done in a Piers and Britain-like way. I'm not sure that this in itself would have caused offence. It shouldn't have, as like all successful parodies, there was a good deal of affection in it, and it was funny in its own right. But Dudley, who may have known them slightly and certainly had met them, unthinkingly entitled the piece Little Miss Britain. Now, Dudley was not malicious, nor had he any reason to mock their homosexuality, of which indeed he may have been unaware. I don't think I knew of it at the time. But with the offending title printed in the programme, they were reported to be deeply upset, and Dudley went into outer darkness, as probably did the rest of us. There's a story told in Tony Palmer's superb film about Britain, A Time There Was, of how when Kathleen Furrier was working with the composer on The Rape of Lucretia, there was quite a serious quarrel, though not with her. Britton tells the story against himself, of how Ferrier took him on one side and said, Oh, Ben, do try and be nice. And he says, slightly surprised, and it worked. Both Britton and Auden's works were in better taste than their lives. Real artists are not nice people, Auden wrote. All their best feelings go into their work, and life has the residue. The habit of art was not easy to write, though its form is quite simple, because so much information had to be passed over to the audience about Auden and his life and about Britain and his, and about their earlier association. Thinking of Beyond the Fringe now, nearly half a century ago, makes me realise how I've projected onto Britain particularly some of the feelings I had when I was a young man, not much older than he was, and thrust into collaboration, which was also competition, with colleagues every bit as daunting as Auden. Recalling their early collaborations in another passage from the play since Scott, Britain remembers his slightly desperate attempts to keep up with Auden and make a contribution besides the musical one. In those days I used to bring along a few carefully worked out notions I'd had for the film shots and sequences, but it was no good. Whiston, you see, could never admit that, he, that I'd thought of anything first. Oh yes, he'd say, as if I was just reminding him of something he'd thought of earlier. You could never tell Whiston anything, just remind him of it. Either that or he'd scamper off with your idea and make it his own, and not merely an idea, a whole country. Whiston was the first person to go to Iceland, did you know that? And Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. Whiston did. While this seems to me a true assessment of Britain's earlier relationship with Auden, it also chimes with my experiences in 1960. So though in some ways I find Britain unsympathetic, he, much more than Auden, is the character I identify with. When I started writing the play, I made much use of the biographies of both Auden and Britain, written by Humphrey Carpenter, and both are models of their kind. 
Indeed, I was consulting his book so much that eventually Carpenter found his way into the play. His widow, Mary Pritchard, was more than helpful over this, though feeling, and I'm sure rightly, that I hadn't done justice to him as a biographer or as a personality. I'd had the same problem in The Madness of George III when trying to fit in another character who was larger than life, namely Charles James Fox. To have given him his proper due would have meant him taking over the play, and so it is with Humphrey Carpenter, my only excuse being that he would have been the first to understand this and to be unsentimental about it. When he turned up on the stage, he tended to hang about and act as a commentator, often speaking directly to the audience. This was useful, as he could explain points of fact, and saved the main characters from telling each other stuff both of them knew already, but that the audience didn't. Even so, there was still a good deal of explaining left to be done. It's a perennial problem for dramatists, and one which Ibsen, for instance, never satisfactorily solved, or, so far as I can see, ever tried to. <laughs> Towards the end of the play, Carpenter mildly reproves Auden and Britain for being so concerned about their reputations when their audience, Auden's readers, Britain's hearers, are anxious simply to draw a line under them both. They don't want more poetry, they don't want more music. They want, as they say nowadays, closure. Guilty at occasionally entertaining such thoughts myself, apropos Updike's relentless output, for instance, I was reassured to find myself not alone in feeling like this. On the death of Crabbe, Lord Melbourne wrote, I'm always glad when one of those fellows dies, for then I know I have the whole of him on my shelf. <laughs> which, is, of course, the, it's, which is, of course, the cue for biography. This is the fifth play on which Nicholas Heitner and I have collaborated, not counting two films. Asked, as one invariably is, what this collaboration consists in, I can describe it in general terms, discussing, or discussing on various drafts of the script, for instance, decisions on casting and such like, but I can never be satisfy, satisfyingly precise, and nor can he. There are no rows or even arguments. Neither of us that I remember ever sulks. It's so amicable that directors or authors of a more abrasive or histrionic turn of mind might think that the creative process was being shortchanged. However, believers in creative conflict will be reassured to hear that this play has been different. If Ibsen couldn't explain things, it's not surprising that I found it hard. So whereas Nicholas Heitner had liked the first draft, he was less keen on the second. The script returned neatly annotated with remarks like, do we need to know this? Too much information. And haven't we had this already? At this point, though not as a result, in April 2008, I had to go into hospital. This knocked me back a bit, and the last thing I wanted to be worrying about was the play. I therefore asked for it to be taken out of the National Theatre schedule, it had been slated for that October, until further notice. When I took it up again, I found the problems to do with too much information had not gone away. But it occurred to me that the business of conveying the facts could largely be solved if a frame were put round the play by setting it in a rehearsal room. Queries about the text and any objections to it could then be put in the mouths of the actors, who, along with the audience, 
could have their questions answered in the course of the rehearsal. There was an unexpected bonus to this in that when, as happened on the next couple of drafts, Nicholas Heitner raised objections, these queries too could just be passed on to the actors. Do we need this? Nick would write in the margin, and on the next draft he would find, do we need this? <laughs> given to the actor. At one point he suggested cutting a pretty tortuous section on Auden's, to me, impenetrable poem, The Sea in the Mirror. We had a discussion about it and I duly cut it, but then introduced the author as a character complaining about the cut. I found all this quite enjoyable, but it happened so often I began to feel the director almost deserved an author's credit. Less of this, more of that, the director is in the first instance an editor, and so it is with Nicholas Heitner and myself. He likes action more than he does discussion, so it's often the more reflective passages that get cut, though they're not always lost. Sometimes they end up in the introduction, or, greatly condensed, I manage to smuggle them back into the text, even though this may have to wait until another play comes along. <laughs> the fractured speech about biography, for instance, that begins the play, was actually a casualty from Kafka's Dick, written more than 20 years ago. Still, it's a pragmatic process, and I'm thankful never to have reached that eminence which would endow every sentence I write with significance and make it untouchable. There's some talk in the play about Auden's propensity to edit his poems, with his older sense censoring what in his younger self he found dishonest or embarrassing. I think he was mistaken, but provided the original survives, which it does both in print and in his readers' heads, it doesn't seem to me to matter much and just gives editors and bibliof bibliophiles something to talk about. To censor one's work is tempting, though. When I was writing The Habit of Art, an earlier play of mine, Enjoy, done in 1980, was revived. At its first outing, it wasn't well received, and were I writing it today, there are things I wouldn't include, and dialogue, dialogue I would do differently. That I didn't cut or alter it, I would like to think, was from reading about Auden falling into a similar time trap. But if I left the play as it was, it was just through laziness and a feeling that by this time the director and the cast probably knew more about it than I did. The stylistic audit oddities in The Habit of Art, rhyming furniture, neighbourly wrinkles and words and music comparing notes, may just be an attempt to smuggle something not altogether factual past the literalist probation officer who's had me in his charge for longer than I like to think and who would, I might have hoped, might have retired by now. Or it may be said that whatever oddities there are come under Edward Said's category of late style. Feeling I'd scarcely arrived at a style, I now found I'm near the end of it. I'm not, not quite sure what late style means except that it's some sort of licence a permit for ageing practitioners to kick their heels up. I don't always need that, and I'm often mildly surprised when something I've included in a script, almost as a joke, gets treated in production as seriously as the rest. Gracie Fields, I jotted in the margin of the History Boys, and the next thing I knew they were rehearsing Sing As We Go. <laughs> the probation officer, or the internal censor one is always trying to outflank, chimes with Britain's plea on behalf of constraint, which, while true to his character, 
is also not unsympathetic to mine. With Britain, censorship was homegrown. His personal policeman never off duty. Stage censorship itself was abolished in 1968, the year of my first play, so I've never been seriously incommoded by it. On the other hand, I regretted its abolition insofar as it seemed to me to deplete significantly the armoury of the dramatist. With censorship there was a line between what one could and couldn't say, and the nearer one got to this line, the greater the tension. How candid did one dare to be? Would the men kiss or the women fondle? After censorship went, the dramatist had to manufacture tension of his or her own. An author is sometimes surprised by, by what he or she has written. A play or a novel may start off as having nothing seemingly to do with his, his or her earlier work, and then as it progresses, or even long after it's finished, it can be seen to relate to themes or persons written about in previous books or plays. It was only when I was finishing the play that I realised that Stuart, the rent boy, is only the latest of a succession of not always similar characters who found their way into my plays, beginning with my second one, Getting On, where he's related to the young jobbing carpenter, Jeff, who's another young man who feels himself shut out and sees sex as a way in. He, in turn, is fellow to the rather pathetic young man, Eric, in the old country, whose complaint is similar to Stuart's and to Leonard Bast's in Howard's End. He's less obviously out of the same box as Coral Brown, who, visiting Guy Burgess in his seedy flat in Moscow in An Englishman Abroad, pauses by a bookshelf, obviously baffled by most of its contents, and even more so by Burgess's questions about Harold Nicholson, Cyril Connolly, and London literary life. The wife in Kafka's Dick is another unmetropolitan waif, and the sports-mad Rudge in The History Boys, rather than the sensitive Posner, is the real outsider. I ought to be embarrassed by these recurrences, and did I feel they had anything to do with me, I might be. But these personages slip in through the back door, or disguised as somebody else altogether. And it's only when, like Stuart, they want their say, and make a plea for recognition and acknowledgement, that I realise the uninvited guest is here again. I ought to know who this figure is, but I'm not sure that I do. Is he myself as a young man at Oxford, baffled by the academic world? Is he one of the young actors in my first play, 40 years on, many of whom I feared would have wasted lives? Is he one of the procession of young actors who've auditioned over the years to play such parts and who've had to be sent away disappointed? Some of the yearning felt in this play by Stuart in the houses of his clientele reflects my own wonder as an undergraduate going to tutorials in the vast Victorian houses of North Oxford. I was there on a different and more legitimate errand than Stuart, but to see a wall covered in books was an education in itself, though visual and aesthetic as much as intellectual. Books do furnish a room, and some of these rooms had little else and there in a corner, the don under a lamp. Sometimes, though, there would be paintings, and occasionally more pictures than I'd ever seen on one wall, together with vases, urns, pottery and other relics, real nests of a scholarly life. 
And there were wonders too. Drinking soup once from 15th century apostle spoons. Medieval embroidery thrown over chair backs. A plaque in the hall that might be by Della Robbia. These days I think of such houses when I go to museums like the Ashmolean or the Fitzwilliam where the great masterpieces are plumped out with the fruits of bequests from umpteen academic households. Paintings, particularly in the Fitzwilliam, antiquities, treasures bought back from Egypt and Italy in more franchised days than ours, squiddled away up Norham Road and Parktown, the components of what Stuart rightly sees as a world from which he will forever be excluded, and from which I felt excluded too, though with less reason. There's always a, uh, there's always a terrible gap there before questions. And I always tell the same story, which is about uh, um, when, I, when, I was, when I was at Oxford, I stayed on and I did research in medieval history and it never came to anything, but I... I, I, I once wrote a paper which I had to deliver to an academic gathering and uh, on Richard II. And at the oh. end of this uh, tedious paper, I, uh, I said, are there any questions? And um, endless silence. And then right at the back, a rather timid undergraduate put his hand up and said, um, could you tell me where you got your shoes? <laughs> uh, it was... Uh, at that point, I realised medieval history wasn't really going to be my future. <laughs> uh, have we any questions about shoes or <laughs> other things? We can't see the shoes. No, well, it's, no, they're of no interest whatsoever, I assure you. You've written this fairly lengthy preface in this uh, autobiographical style, which you have made, I think, almost uniquely your own. Do you write the preface to a play like this, knowing that at some distant point you're going to be wheeled out in front of a pile <laughs> of people at this sort of uh, do, thinking, oh, God, what am I going to say? <laughs> Is that one of the motives for writing that rather erudite and, and uh, cheerful preface? Uh, I like writing the preface I, because I... Um I know it's going to be a repository for all the stuff that's cut out, uh, which I often uh, want to save. Um, and, uh, and also, because um, the process of rehearsal is often quite interesting, and, and so I often put stuff like that in it. Uh, they, I mean, obviously, the, the, the person who used to write, uh, whose prefaces were almost as uh, important as the plays, was Shaw, but uh, I don't think they're at all shabby, and they're much more gossipy, really, mine. Um, but um, no, I, I always do write an introduction and, uh, and, and enjoy it, really. Mm. Having said that, uh, the prefaces are, in fact, post-faces, aren't they? Because most people read them after they've seen the play. Uh, oh, yes, no, they... they, they um, uh, they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't mean anything really until you read the play. Um, but um, this uh, verse. This was in the LRB. But um, uh, a version of it was uh, was in the program at the national. The programs at the national, um, though I'm blowing their trumpet, they are um, unlike uh, programs in the West End. They do actually um, tell you stuff about the play. And, uh, and there's a very good in the in this. Uh, the programme for the play, there's a very good um, 
well, two reminiscences, one by Michael Barclay, uh, or three actually, one, uh, one uh, by, above, about Humphrey Carpenter, and then a very, very good one by Patrick Garland about Auden, uh, whom he knew um, and, and, and saw uh, in, in the room that's represented in the play right at the end of Auden's life. Uh, and I think um, Andrew Motion, I think, went into that room, but nobody else uh, I, I've spoken to did. And he he uh, he went in and uh, and Auden. He said it was acute. He'd, he'd known Auden much better earlier on when he was professor of poetry, and had called to see him out of piety, I suppose, really. Uh, and, uh, and neither, well, Auden had nothing to say to him, and, and he just, uh, it was very embarrassing. They just sat there staring at one another for half an hour. Um, but uh, it's a very good piece. He also said, he also did, uh, uh, in, the, in the piece, uh, Auden was quite naughty and, um, and provocative, and um, I think in, the, uh, in 1957, when he was uh, professor of poetry, he was walking along the the towpath when uh, the Christchurch Eight uh, lifted their boat out of the uh, the river, and uh, and Auden um, ran along beside them, saying, "I know how to do it with nine. <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah. Um, knowing that film adaptations aren't always as successful as the stage plays on which they're based. I was wondering um, how you felt about the film adaptation of the History Boys, whether you were happy with it, satisfied with it, um, or whether you were rather disappointed, perhaps. No, I, was, I liked it. I, 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 some people do dislike it. Um, I, I think it depends whether you saw the play. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. first, or you saw the film first. Um, the play always, the, the film always seems to me sadder than the play. I don't quite know why. Um, maybe because some of the physical exuberance of, uh, of the uh, play, which uh, lightens it, uh, is missing. But um, I... I like them both very much they, uh, and wouldn't alter anything in either um i think if it, if it had been uh, shown um say 10 years earlier on the bbc then it would have been uh, done very very well i think i i, I, I this sounds if i'm very pleased with myself but I, i'm not normally uh, so 
positive about I mean, for instance, George III, there was all sorts wrong with George III, um, but uh, I wouldn't alter anything in, in uh, um, the History Boys film. Hi. Uh, when you launch a new play, do you go and see it yourself with the new audience? And if you do, do you find that they find the same things funny as you'd hope they did, or do they sometimes laugh at the things which you perhaps didn't intend to be that funny in the first place? Um, like, I go to all the rehearsals, and then I go to the previews, and it's at the previews you get an idea of what it's going to be like. Um, the, uh, the first preview of... History Boys was in some ways the best performance they ever did, really. It was so big, partly because they were so astonished by the response of the audience. But um, you, uh, you see the previews and then you, um, you tighten it up, really. And, uh, um, and depending on how experienced the actors are, you, if they, um, uh, if, uh, in the comic lines, if they don't come right, you, you alter them particularly. Um, but uh, the the good thing about this um, play was that normally a, lo a lot of the time you spend in previews is to do with cutting the play and getting it. I mean, I, I never think you uh, Churchill said uh, the head can't take in more than the seat can endure, and uh, and I I never think that a play should last more than an hour each way, and and a lot of the time is spent in previews trying to get it down really get the time down, but this one we did cut quite um, radically first, and so it was never too long. Um, but um, I, uh, I, 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 you, you see, I, I watch from the producer's box, which is at the back of the auditorium. I don't sit in the auditorium. Um, and, uh, and you see people coming in, and you, I'm afraid you despair that you're going to be able to do anything with them at all. They look, <laughs> and they look so... They look so disparate, and, 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 and you know, and you think, oh well, uh, maybe they'll like it, but I don't think they will. Uh, and uh, and so you do. You, it is very dispiriting in a way. But then, of course, then you you get the other experience when they they were very um, responsive. The actors are the people who uh, who uh, can tell you most about it. But actors are very choosy. You know, if they if they lose a laugh, they come in, come away and say, oh, the audience was terrible. Uh, and of course, it's just that they've missed a laugh, that's all. Could you please enlarge on the title of your play? I'm thinking about the two words, habit. Art. Can, can you say a little bit more about how you link them together? Um, well, the phrase is actually it's not mine. It's um, it was said by um, Flannery O'Connor, uh, uh, the uh, American short story writer. I think she she said uh, scientists have the habit of science. I have the habit of art. Though uh, John Bird, who I mentioned earlier, he the reason why he rung me to tell me talk about Doris Stockhausen was because uh, he had he come across an earlier use of the habit of art in some abstruse correspondence with uh, Jacques Maritain. But uh, anyway, uh, I I found it in Flannery O'Connor, and uh, I take it to mean, and uh, Auden keeps referring to it in the play that um, 
that's all he's good for, really. That you know, that's what this is what he's done all his life. Uh, and although now inspiration has departed from him, he nevertheless, this is what he does. This is his habit. This is what he does. Now, it's not true of Britain because Britain's inspiration was still um, relatively fresh at the end of his life. Um, uh, n somebody who didn't have the habit of art, but whose inspiration, because his inspiration failed, was Larkin. Um, Larkin, uh, when he found he couldn't write poetry, he stopped writing. He didn't uh, just persist in the way that Auden did. Um, and and that's, uh, well, that's a different kind of wisdom, really. Um, Auden uh, is... Uh, I mean, I, I understand Auden persisting because I'm often in that situation where you don't you don't have any idea what you want to do, but you you just feel you've got to work really, and uh, that's the way we've been brought up, <laughs> and and so you go to the table and and maybe something happens, but maybe it doesn't, but uh, that's the habit of art. Really. This might lower the tone a bit, which I apologise. <laughs> um, I was at Oxford in the early 70s, and this is just maybe just... I've got no question. There may be a question at the end of it, but <laughs> I was, I was uh, given the duty of sitting next to Auden at a, a dinner in my college, uh, the Thomas Davenant Society at Lincoln, and they said, you sit next to him because you're never short of something to say and you know, you'll be able to keep him amused. So I asked this craggy old chap... He'd recently just moved into his rooms in Christchurch. And I said, how are your rooms, sir? Are they comfortable? And he said, well, they're quite nice, but the basin's not high enough to, low enough to pee in. And I, I suppose there is a question in here, because I haven't seen the play, but is there some mention of this in the play? Oh, yes. And I want to know how you know about that, <laughs> because... Well, I know about it because, in fact, he, he, you weren't the only person he said that to. I mean, no, well, <laughs> I think this must have been one of his yes, persistent no, things. And he said it to everybody. He said it to, uh, <laughs> to the dons at Christchurch who got fed up with it, and he said it to the vice-chancellor, yes. and, uh, and it made no difference what the status. He just, he just did complain about his, the base. So here's my question. Right. I, I had a colleague at work who also has to pee in the basin. And um, we call him Basin Boy. Um, and I just wonder whether you think that these are perhaps boys that have been smacked when they've been small for not being able to um, aim straight or something like that. Because it seems very extraordinary to me. Anyway, that's why you, you don't need to answer that question, but I'd just like to add a postscript to say that I also was once in a play at the Edinburgh Festival, which was written by Humphrey Carpenter, and it was called Love and Lewis Carroll. And Humphrey Carpenter is a fantastic, was, sadly died much too young, a fantastic polymath, I don't yeah. know what the word would be, uh, writer, yeah. uh, journalist, and an exceptional man. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Thank you very much. No, he was, uh, Humphrey Carpenter, was, I, I, I mean, he interviewed me once, and, uh, but he was... Um, he, uh, and he was uh, he was a very very good broadcaster and uh, he had a jazz band and uh, and wrote w uh, wonderful children's stories um, and uh, then he had he got Parkinson's very early and uh, and died and, he, and even when he had Parkinson's he uh, 
um, uh, he wrote a musical about having Parkinson's uh, and, uh, um, and wrote a number called Putting on My Socks. And uh, he, he was a, a wonderful man. His widow had been so understanding about, um, about letting... Because uh, he's, he's a caricature, really, in the play, but then, since it's a play within a play, I don't feel I'm entirely responsible for that. <laughs> but, um, but about the peeing in the basin, um, uh, he, uh, in the play, he has to get onto a sort of slight plinth, really, to pee in the basin. Uh, and it was the, the basin was the wrong height. But uh, I don't know where it came from. It Maybe he was smacked as a, as a child, but then he'd be aware of things like that. And I don't think he ever mentions it. Um, but uh, it, uh, you can see that uh, if somebody was sitting next to you at dinner every night and, and, and kept asking you about that, you might get a bit, uh, well, pissed off, really. <laughs> Um, I think Auden and Britain were at the same school, they're not at the same time. Did, did you ever think of making a reference to that in the play? No, they were at Gresham's, weren't they? Yes. Uh, and Isherwood was as well. Um, and I think, uh, uh, and Spender was as well. It was, uh, um, um, although I, I don't know who overlapped with whom. But um, the, uh, the, there was a master at the school, a music master, uh, called... Greeterex, I think it was named well, uh, and um, and he was a great um, encourager. Of Spender particularly writes about him very gratefully for uh, for. I think he said to him, uh, "You you may find life hard now, but it will get better." And and, this, and Spender took heart from that. Um, but and uh, and I think similarly was uh, I don't know about Orden, but he was inspirational to Wisherwood as well. Um, but not to Britain. Britain found him no help at all. I mean, and and uh, and didn't think either. He was discouraging uh, to him about over his music. I don't know, but he, I think he was quite glad to to, to leave Gresham's and, and go to the Royal Academy. Hello, hi. Um, you mentioned Ibsen earlier, and and also the late phase. Now your late. Uh, Ibsen went all metaphysical in his uh, late phase. Do you have any plans to become metaphysical? <laughs> or are you too much of a Yorkshireman? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I, I mean, Ibsen, I don't really understand it. Um, uh, the, I, I, uh, when Paul Schofield, I really, really admired Paul Schofield. I thought he was, a, as a man and as an actor. Um, and the last play he did was John Gabriel Borkman. Uh, and somebody was saying how wonderful he was in John Gabriel Borkman. So and I'd never read or seen John Gabriel Borkman. So I thought, well, I'd better read it. And I read it, and I, I could not see any merit in it at all. I mean, and that's awful, I know. But I, I, uh, it's so it's so clunking some of it. And um, uh, I know very little about Ibsen, but uh, I, d I don't quite see his. Uh, uh, and I, and I, I've seen I saw Hedda Gabler with Maggie Smith. And I like that, but even so, it was, you know, just tip it over just a very slight bit and it would be hilarious, really. And, <laughs> and, and she, uh, Maggie Smith said to me that, uh, that Tennessee Williams came to see it and, uh, and, and in the hushed silence, uh, while she's either feeding the novel into the, into the furnace or whatever or getting ready to shoot herself, uh, Tennessee, Tennessee Williams was hysterical. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so, 
I don't know, so there is something. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I find it hard to be reverent about Ibsen, anyway. You're from the same neck of the woods as I am, and um, I'm interested in your, how you've retained your accent, really, because I haven't. And I was, I don't know, and then going to Oxford and the whole thing, and I didn't do anything like that. But I went to um, a grammar school where, you know, uh, girls, it was Austria girls and not Austria. And so I'm just in, interested in that. And it's lovely mm. to listen to you. Well, uh, this is about a question. If you didn't hear that, it was about a question about, uh, about accent and about uh, uh, keeping a Yorkshire accent and not losing it at school. I, I went to, uh, um, I didn't go to Leeds Grammar School, which isn't a state school. I went to a school then called Leeds Modern School. It's now called Lawnswood School. Um, and uh, it had no uh, social aspirations at all, really. And, uh, uh, and you weren't aware of, uh, of accent um, or, the, or, or the fact that you spoke differently from, or from, you know, you didn't speak differently from anybody else. Everybody spoke the same. But um, uh, Tony Harrison, um, he went, uh, was more or less my contemporary, he went to Leeds Grammar School where they made determined efforts to get rid of his accent and, and mocked him for it, particularly when he was reading Shakespeare and he'd written poems about it. Now, nothing like that happened at my school, so uh, I left uh, school with this full-blown uh, Leeds accent um, and then went to uh, went in the army where a lot of the people I was with uh, were from public schools because it was we were, I learned Russian in the army and it was a, a lot of people going on to university afterwards um, and so I then I think probably that began to knock the edges off my accent a bit uh, and uh, but it never got very far and I and I um, I think it probably uh, it, it, any attempt to speak properly or to speak, you know, standard English uh, went when I left Oxford, really. Uh, but uh, the the um, the revealing letters are uh, vowels, um, and uh, it, supposedly A's are the worst, and they're saying bath, not bath. Uh, but U's are the really treacherous ones, because you... Uh, that I still get uh, caught out by U's, and, and uh, I occasionally will hear myself saying butcher. Uh, and um, uh, and I was once, um, uh, well, I've said, I've, 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 Mark Lawson interviewed me on the television last night, and, and I told this story about how I was once in a, um, a recital at Cambridge directed by Daddy Rylands. Um, uh, of whom I was terrified. And um, it was with Judy Dench, who's also from Yorkshire, but she's from, I think she was educated at the Mount School in York, and so there's no trace of a, of a uh, Yorkshire accent with Judy. Anyway, the, one, of the, one of the pieces in this poem was about Garrick and how he would take praise from any quarter and found it welcome, including, and this was the, the difficult phrase I had to get past, the puff of a dunce. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and the first time I said it in rehearsal, I said the path of a dance, uh, and she became, uh, Judy became hysterical, and then, and then I, so I went away and practiced it and practiced it, and then, then um, 
And it came out, I can't think of how it came the perf of a dance, I think it came out. <laughs> it's just awful, and uh, Daddy Ryland was very uh, upset. <laughs> but uh, you got, it seems to me they, it lies in wait for you. Uh, you, you know, even, if you, even if you've got rid of your accent, you, it's, it's always going to lie in ambush, so you might as well not even make the attempt, I think, really. <laughs> Alan, we've talked about Ibsen quite a lot. Do you see your plays being performed in a hundred years' time, and does it matter to you one way or whether they are or aren't? Uh, I, I, suppose, I suppose I'd like to think that they might be, but I don't have any... Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I can't see it matters to you, or it can matter to you, because you're not going to be around. Um, I think there's probably too much... Um, well, a critic once said, said that I, sh I should try and weed my plays of impermanence. Uh, and that means, I think, he meant take out the jokes, I think, really. Uh, and, uh, and so I think, I think the jokes will probably consign them to oblivion, really. Um, but um, so, so, I don't know. Some, I, I watched, um, which I hadn't seen, really, since we did it. I watched... Um, Thora heard last night, and um, and it wasn't as if I'd written it really. I was just watching it and 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 saw well this deserves to last really, and uh, simply because uh, it's extraordinary to see. So she was eighty nine when she did it, and to see somebody able to do it at that age and to do it as well as she did, I, I just thought that was. Uh, I'm glad it was on film. I'm glad that we got it. Mm. Not for the accent, but it's the rhythms, isn't it? And yeah. what we love about your prose and your way you speak the language are your rhythms, which are presumably not my rhythms from London. Mm. I don't know, maybe they are, but I mean, how is that? that? The accent almost seems irrelevant, but, but the rhythms seem essential. Well, I, th I think it's... It is to do with some uh, northern speech is a lot to do with rhythms and with to do with I mean I think it's Danish in origin I think of putting the uh, putting the um, essential word at the end of the sentence very often the verb is at the end of the sentence um, but uh, I don't I never like to think too much about it in case it goes you know you don't you don't want to become self conscious about it it's like like if you're a footballer you don't want to start thinking about how you kick the ball. Um, but I think the rhythm has a lot to do with it. Um, and, uh, but I'm so used to myself uh, I, 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 and the way I speak that I've lost um, any notion of what standard English is, really. So that I'll say something which I think is, is a perfectly straightforward way of saying it, and, and, and then it's the, that sort to be dialect, really, by, you know. Uh, but I, I think now people are more used to it now and don't care. But um, uh, I think early on I, I, I used to try and, uh, and, and wrench it round into standard English. But it's a mistake, of course. Obviously, one should keep it as, as, one, as it comes out. Um, I think, I think uh, when my first play, 40 years on, uh, John Gielgud was in it, and... Uh, and I think he uh, uh, pulled me up over one or two things and, 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 and 
changed it round so that he could say it in a more mellifluous way, really. <laughs> but you couldn't really say no to him. Um, I just wondered, I'm looking at untold stories here and that particular time of your life when you actually, after your illness, you, you wrote that. And looking at this play, which I'm going to see on Wednesday, so I haven't seen it uh -huh. yet, um, I just wondered how long that idea had been around or whether that was to do with the stage you are at your life now or uh -huh. the idea has come over a very long period of time. Uh -huh. Well, the, the, the illness I referred to in the preface, it wasn't, the, the, it wasn't having cancer, it was to do with, uh, but, but it, well, in a sense it was to do with that, because if you have cancer then you're regularly examined afterwards, and, and so they pick stuff up which you wouldn't uh, know about, and, and the, what they picked up was an aneurysm, which, um, and, uh, and so... Um, it, it, it didn't, it, and really, you know, and then I had to have an operation for this. The aneurysm was quite funny, really, because they, 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 uh, they found this aneurysm on my stomach, and um, uh, and normally these days an aneurysm can be dealt with quite um, sometimes even by day surgery, by a stent, and and, and it's fairly straightforward. But um, I knew there was something wrong when the the surgeon started getting very interested in it, and um, <laughs> and it was in a place nobody had ever had an aneurysm before, and uh, and they said, oh, you know, I think we're going to have to do open surgery, and you could see they were sort of rubbing their hands really, and um, and it was in it was in this whatever I never fathomed out where it was quite, but I said uh, I said at one point, um, does it mean that I can? It was called a dissection of the upper mesenteric artery uh, and uh, and I said do you think I could give my name to this spot since nobody's ever had one before because uh, I thought Bennett's dissection was rather a good name you see and the surgeon wasn't enthusiastic and because uh, uh, I think he had his eye on it himself <laughs> anyway but it, it 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 was a perfectly um it was the operation would last it seven hours, so it was quite a major thing, and took far more out of me than the cancer ever did. So, uh, you know, it. Uh, but but uh, it's not. There was less anguish of mind about it. Um, but uh, the play was. Uh, I just put it on one side because you you just don't want to get tied up in not thinking about it when you're poorly. I don't know how difficult it is to overcome and move beyond early success. Uh, looking back over half a century, have you actually found that life is like a tin of sardines? <laughs> uh, life is like a tin of sardines was a sketch I did in Beyond the Fringe. Um, I don't know, I've had to think about Beyond the Fringe quite a bit when, when I was doing that, as I sort of hinted at in the preface, because we were... Um, I can see that... Um, uh, you know, the combined um, verbal skills of, of Jonathan Miller and Peter Cook uh, affected me in much the same way as the, as the verbal skills of Auden affected Britain. Um, and I did exactly what I say, wrote there, what, that I did used to... We used to have, uh, when we were writing Beyond the Fringe, we used to have um, 
uh, I suppose they would be called script conferences, but we didn't call it that. We just had meetings. And, um, and I used to try and work out things in advance, which uh, Peter certainly could uh, extemporize. He just could just do it off the top of his head. Um, and, uh, and Johnson would, would pick up an idea and run with it, really. Um, but um, so I, I, I do, as I say, see myself uh, in, in Britain's shoes of being very um, daunted by Orton. Um, but uh, the good thing about Beyond the Fringe wasn't uh, um, the success of it uh, w was wonderful, but we were too young for it, really. You somehow, at that age, you assume this is what it's going to be like, and of course it isn't. And, uh, um, and to have a success on Broadway, as it was, was, uh, again, we just more or less took it for granted, whereas I then had to wait half a lifetime to have another success uh, with, with the History Boys. But the good thing about Beyond the Fringe was it did give you just enough money um, to to last you until you didn't have to work. You you could uh, you know I had enough money to do my next play, and then uh, you sort of leapfrogged along for a while. Um, and uh, and so in that sense, it was a great blessing. Um, but um, it also showed me that. Um, I wanted to work on my own, I think. That was the other thing. Are we, am I going over time, by the way? Two more questions. Yeah. Um, you, were, you said some time ago, or at least you were reported as having said, um, something, I'm paraphrasing here, but you, were, you, you thought of yourself as the, one of the UK's last monarchists. I can't, sorry, I can't hear. Sorry. You, you um, were reported um, as having said that you thought of yourself as one of the UK's Remaining monarchists, I think, paraphrasing there. Uh -huh. um, as a admirer of your work, but also a Republican, I'd be very interested in sort of hearing your elaboration on that uh, on that uh, idea. Um, I'm, I, I, I think I said I was one of the the, the country's few remaining monarchists. Uh, now, um, that is true. I'm not a monarchist in any sense of. I'm not uh, passionate about it. Uh, I'm indifferent to it in, in lots of ways. Though I can't s see that if the monarchy was replaced by uh, any uh, system um, whereby uh, a president was, was nominated or elected, it would be better. I, uh, I, uh, I, I can see it might be better the, if... Uh, than if uh, Prince Harry came to the throne, for instance. But uh, uh, I don't think it would be better than, than the Queen, although I, I don't, I don't, I, I tend to think uh, things get worse rather than better. And, uh, and so I suppose in that sense, just almost by inanition, really, I'm a monarchist. But uh, I also like the way the Queen speaks. And uh, and uh, and I like this. She makes jokes, and I like that. And uh, um, and so, uh, for, for, the, for sentimental reasons, I know that these don't don't cut much ice. But I suppose that's that's what it is, really. Who wants to ask the last question? Hi, I was, I was just interested to know about the casting for your plays. Um, obviously, Francis de la Tour and Richard Griffiths. Who I know. Tended in from Michael Gamble at the last moment is in um, Habit of Art. But I just wondered how involved you get in choosing the actors and actresses that are 
in your plays? Um, well, we, what happens um, is that it's, it's, you don't... Uh, you just talk about it and you talk about people who would be suitable and... Uh, um, and uh, uh, Richard Griffiths obviously wasn't the first choice with this. Uh, now, because uh, Michael Gambon was ill, we uh, he couldn't do it. Um, but uh, um, you uh, you then have to think. Uh, well, who can do it? Uh, Richard, did, well, uh, well, we obviously we worked with. Um, is the wrong shape really for it? And and but we then. Uh, could see how with the play being a play within a play that could be um, accommodated uh, within the dialogue which it is um, but uh, it's like any other job really I think you like working with people that you've had a good time with or that uh, you know who uh, like Francis Latour um, and you uh, and and so you you go back to them again. I mean, if I, if I if I ever did a, I had a hard time on a play with Nick Hyten. I'm sure you wouldn't do the next play because simply because you you know that's it is a play and and you you and you are playing. You know, it's not it is a most serious thing, but it nevertheless is is um, it's a joke really, even with the most serious play. So because uh, it's uh, it's a play, um, but uh, you don't. Uh, or rather, we don't uh, spell it out really that this is a casting conference. Really, you're just chatting about, and and and, and that, I wouldn't like to be overheard because you they do pass some quite harsh comments on, <laughs> on uh, other actors. And uh, and for instance, when when Michael dropped out, there were lots of actors you couldn't ask because it's known that they don't like to be asked uh, after other another actor. You know, they they don't they want to be the first choice. The, there's another question over there. That just uh, that, that could be the last one. My question is about the Queen. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. My no, voice no, carries. I could, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Can I can I look at my audience? <laughs> I um I wrote to you and I asked you. Is this a queen that you know, or is this a queen that you imagined uh -huh. in the uncommon reader? Uh, it's it's both. It's both, really, because you know everybody knows how the queen talks, um, and and uh, uh, and if you get her, if you, I mean, one thing that I say myself, one thing that uh, I, I'm I'm not good at plots, but I have got an ear for dialogue, and so I can. Um, pick up on that and so uh, I know uh, what she would say in a situation I think uh, you don't think so <laughs> uh, but um, uh, I think maybe I, I it's rather a romantic notion uh, both in the question of attribution and in um, the uncommon reader uh, and that I um, uh, Gift her with uh, with a uh, wit and intelligence she may not have. I don't know. I've no means. I've never met her. So, uh, but um, she's a she's a very very um, rewarding character to write about because uh, there's so little you need to do. To everybody knows uh, what she's like, what she looks like. Uh, everybody knows what her life is like. So all the things that. Um, 
a novelist or a short story writer would normally have to do with the character is already done for you uh, and so you can you can make do with very very little and and, and the, some of her dialogue in uh, the uncommon reader is very very sparse but it um, I, I hope it does the trick and uh, so uh, I'm very grateful to Her Majesty. <laughs> anyway, I think that would be a good note to end on. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 